0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Joseph Ellis. This program originally aired in 2010.
1: To show you how misguided I am, I thought that Portsmouth was merely an exit off 95 on the way to Maine. I have I have become enlightened. And um, uh, I also was worried about this event a little bit because the title of the series, which is Writers on a New England Stage, I thought, well, gosh, maybe that means you have to be a New Englander. And in some sense, I've been a New Englander for 38 years, but I was born a Virginian, and where I live in Amherst now, nobody that's not native-born is considered a New Englander. So I sort of developed my rap to defend myself, um... I own property in Massachusetts and in Vermont. Um, I'm an avid fan of the Red Sox, Patriots, and, uh, and Celtics. Indeed, um, my affinity and commitment to the Red Sox allows me to understand a, a famous, what's well, not famous, but a, I think it should be famous letter that Abigail wrote near the end to her sister, who had asked her whether or not, if she had to do it all over again, she would marry John. And what she said was that they had suffered together so much that she couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else. All of us understand what that really is about. (laughs) I feel almost privileged to have been able to write this book because some while ago I wrote a book about Adams called Passionate Sage. And I sort of stumbled into the Adams family correspondence and recognized that a conversation was going on there that that was extraordinary and rich and intimate. And I wanted to come back to it. And so finally I have. Um, It is a great story because it is simultaneously a love story, a 59-year-old love story between a man and a woman in which love changes its coloration and its feelings and over the years. It is a love story for adults, and it's simultaneously a love story being lived across a rather consequential historical landscape, namely the winning of American independence and the creation and securing of the first large-scale nation-sized republic in world history, which now has become the oldest enduring republic in world history. That's quite, quite a background, and Abigail and John's lives are interacting with this history consistently and continually. But to some extent, it's the love story that really first grabbed me, and here's what I tried to explain at the start. All of us who have fallen in love and tried to raise children, suffered extended bouts of doubt about the integrity of our ambitions, watched our once youthful bodies betray us, harbored illusions about our impregnable principles, and done all this with a partner traveling the same trail, know what unconditional commitment means and why, especially today, it is the exception rather than the rule. Abigail and John traveled down that trail about 200 years before us. They remained lovers and friends throughout and together had a hand in laying the foundation of, as I say, what is the oldest enduring republic in world history. And they left a written record of all the twitches, traumas, throbbings, and tribulations along the way. No one else has ever done that. One of the reasons for writing this book was to figure out how they did it. The book is possible because of the letters. There are about 1,200 letters exchanged between Abigail and John that have been preserved. The volume of the letters is important. The quality is equally important. Question, why are there so many letters? Abigail and John are apart a lot. Makes sense, right? If you're together, you don't have to write letters. There aren't many letters between Dolly and James Madison for that very reason. They're always together. John is in Philadelphia. Abigail is in Braintree. John is in Paris and Amsterdam. She's in Braintree or Quincy. Even when he's vice president in the second term, she doesn't like Philadelphia, thinks it's a putrid city, and um, yellow fever and all that, swampy, and... um, So there's a lot of correspondence. Though when when he becomes president, she eventually pretty quickly comes down to Philadelphia. He writes her and says, throw the farm to the mercy of the winds. I can do nothing without you. A second reason is they were self-conscious about copying them or preserving them. Now, I won't say that they knew that over 200 years later there would be this gathering of folk in Portsmouth um, on this stage. Not quite that specific. But they had a keen sense of their own historical significance. And they would, in Adam's John's way, say he was writing as much to posterity as to Abigail. They knew these letters would be preserved. In that sense, there is somewhat of a performance here. Why did they think that was important? Well, Abigail and John would say, well, it's a family thing. We want our children and grandchildren and subsequent heirs to know what it was like to live through the American Revolution. And yet, in John's case, he had larger ambitions. he was seeking what we might call secular immortality. Meaning living on in the memory of subsequent generations and in the history books. John was, as he aged, not so sure about the Christian notion of life after death. He and he and uh, Benjamin Rush, a Philadelphia physician, and Jefferson exchanged several funny letters or honest, candid letters on this. Though, to me, the, the best line from Adams was to an anonymous person in which he said, if it can ever be shown conclusively that there is no life after death, my advice to every man, woman, and child on the planet is to take opium. So, um, he thought that this these letters would be his way of assuring some form of secular immortality. Though when he, in his old age, started to reread them, you know, open up the the archive, he was scared to death. He said, "God help me if they see any of these letters, because they're so honest and so edgy." Um, but I think he's coming into his own. I think we're finally mature enough to want imperfect founders, human founders, edgy founders, flawed founders. And I think the success of the HBO movie and the McCulloch biography shows that Adams has arrived, and I want Abigail to be part of that arrival. There is being planned a new... Memorial to Adams in Washington. It's not going to be on the mall, but it's going to be right across from the, from the uh, White House. And I, I'm on the committee, and I'm lobbying for Abigail and John with little John Quincy trailing behind. We're going to get the conservative family values people on our side here. There's a quality to them that is, not, that is just as important as their number. Let me try to share this with you. They meet in 1759 at a parlor in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and they don't really find each other very interesting. It's not love at first sight. It might be love at second or third sight, but eventually it clearly is love. And um, Abigail was apparently more than half serious when a few months before the wedding asked John to deliver on his promise and, quote, tell me all my faults, both of omission and commission, and all the evil you know or think of me. John responded with a mock catalog of your faults, imperfections, deficits, or whatever you please to call them. She was, he observed, negligent at playing cards, could not sing a note, often hung her head like a bulrush, sat with her legs crossed, was pigeon-toed, and to cap it off, she read too much. Abigail responded that many of these defects were probably incurable, especially the reading, so he would have to learn to live with them. The leg-crossing charge struck her as awkward, since a gentleman has no business to concern himself with the legs of a lady. (laughs) These letters exchanged during their courtship provide the first and fullest window into the chemistry of their relationship, but... It would probably be wrong to presume that the correspondence accurately reflected the way they talked to each other when together. Letter writing in the 18th century was a more deliberative and self-conscious, self-consciously artful exercise than those of us in the present with all our cell phones, emails, and text messaging can fully fathom. The letters, of course, are all we have to recover the texture of their overlapping personalities And while they constitute a long string of emotional and intellectual pearls unmatched in the literature of the era, and I really mean that, they were also self-conscious performances, quasi-theatrical presentations that were more stylized and orchestrated than real conversations. There are some things, in other words, that we can never know for sure about their deepest thoughts and feelings even though they are among the most fully revealed couples in American history. Two essential ingredients in their lifetime literary dialogue were clear from the start. First, Abigail, despite the lack of any formal education, she was homeschooled, if you will, by her mother and her grandmother, her father, excuse me, and her grandmother. Abigail could match John with a pen, which was saying quite a lot since he proved to be one of the master letter writers in an era not lacking for serious contenders like Jefferson and Franklin. Second, there was a presumed sense of psychological equality between them that Abigail expected and John found intoxicating rather than threatening. She was marrying a man who loved the fact that she was, as he put it, saucy and he was marrying a woman who was simultaneously capable of unconditional love and personal independence. They recognized from the beginning that they were a rare match. The wedding occurred on October 25, 1764, in the same parlor of her father's house in Weymouth, where they had initially found themselves so uninteresting. In her last letter to John before the wedding, Abigail asked him to take all her belongings, which she was forwarding in a cart to their new home in Braintree. And then, sir, if you please, she concluded, you may take me. (laughs) The thing that's wonderful about the story, it is on I said a love story and a story about the making of American history, coexisting, interacting. It's a story about things intimate and things public interacting. It's a, thing, it's a story about the personal and the historical, all happening at the same time. Um, I could have picked the signing of the Declaration of Independence because at the same time that's going on, Abigail's got four kids being inoculated in Boston, and John is, is conflicted about whether he should stay in Philadelphia or come join them because inoculation... Is a risky business at that stage. 7,000 people have smallpox in Boston in the summer of 1776. 3,000 of them are going to die. Um, but I pick another moment instead. Um, it's probably the most famous letter in the entire Adams family correspondence. Um, it's called the Remember the Ladies Letter. Some of you know this? This is a letter from March 31st, 1776. This is a time when the British are just vacating Boston, the evacuation, and the debates in the Continental Congress are reaching a climax as to whether or not we're going to commit to to full independence. The moderates still have a majority. Adams is among the radicals, insisting that independence is inevitable. And here, Abigail writes him a letter in which she talks about the British evacuation, about the smallpox virulence. Um, Then she she says this, and by the way, and this is a sign for all, whenever you hear someone say, by the way, (laughs) look out, because something is coming that is, well. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, desire you will remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power in the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. It is a stunning statement. In the context of the moment, Abigail is saying to John, the very arguments you have been hurling against George III and Parliament, namely that consent must be the basis for all legitimate government, not coercion, That principle also applies to the family and to the relationship between the sexes or between men and women. Abigail consciously recognizes that the ideology being propagated to make the American Revolution justified has much broader implications. In fact, she really does recognize that she grasped the central insight of modern feminism, that patriarchy itself is inherently flawed. That is a big deal. John wasn't sure she was being serious. In fact, he responded on the assumption that she was being playful, which to some extent she was, all men knew that women were the real tyrants within the family, he joked. And he had no intention of exchanging the tyranny of George III for what he called the despotism of the petticoat. As for Abigail's extraordinary code of laws, he said, I cannot but laugh. Abigail was bantering, but she was deadly serious. And she wrote to Mercio de Warren that... Um, that John didn't take her seriously, but she intended to force him to do so. And they, they bantered back and forth. There's several salvos along this line over the ensuing months. Most of the anthologies only give you the first letter, the women's studies anthologies, but there's several letters back and forth. And then um, Abigail has the last word. But you must remember that arbitrary power is like most other things that are very hard, she concluded defiantly. And notwithstanding all your wise laws and maxims, we have it in our power not only to free ourselves but to subdue our masters and without violence to throw your legal and natural authority at your feet. Wow. Intellectually, it's clear that Abigail recognized the core insights of modern feminism. But she herself chose not to act on those insights in a way that a political feminist would do. Abigail never advocated the vote for the for women. Abigail's deepest personal satisfaction came from her, her role as a mother and wife, her roles as mother and wife. And her only daughter, Abigail, too, they called Nabby, she raised her as a traditional New England woman uh, with primary responsibilities as a housewife and mother. It's a tragic story about Nabby, the way it plays out for her. Um, Why? Because Abigail understood that The insights that she had were so far ahead of popular opinion, like maybe 200 years, that for her to lead her life according to them was to alienate her from the rest of society. She did not want to become a Mary Wollstonecraft of America. Um, So is she a feminist? Hmm. She has the central insight of feminist, modern feminism as I say, but I would call her a proto-feminist. Maybe that's just being, um, you know, elliptical. But to recognize that in her own li- life and the, and the way she lived it, um, she was a traditional New England w- woman. Opinionated and extraordinarily um, uh, independent. This particular debate also opens a little window into the Adams' view of the American Revolution, which I think is, if not distinctive or original, it's distinctive. John and Abigail were both radicals on the issue of independence. Before it was fashionable in the rest of the colonies, they were way out ahead. They thought that American independence was inevitable and not impossible. New England was ahead of, rest, of the rest of the country. Massachusetts was, was leading the way and, um, because they were being occupied by the British Army. And, but Abigail and John were ahead of everybody. But there was then the agenda of the revolution beyond independence. And if you took the revolutionary ideology seriously or literally, the property qualification for voting should go Women should be given full citizenship, and most alarmingly, slavery had to go, right? These are the obvious logical implications of the arguments that were being made and that are enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Both Abigail and John believed that this agenda needed to be implemented slowly, rather than suddenly later in the french revolution they'll say this is the big mistake the french made they the soup is very hot and they try to eat it right away and they scald their throats you needed time now it took a heck of a long time when the women's rights issue it takes you know until 1920 to get the vote um, and certainly slavery is delayed until the civil war and for those who believe the justice delayed is justice denied it's an unacceptable position, morally. On the other hand, the Adams' view of the American Revolution as a seeping revolution, as, if you will, an evolutionary revolution, is one of the reasons it succeeds. One of the reasons that it establishes institutions that survive, and unlike both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution after it, devour, it does not devour its own it's on children. Um, and I think that's important. It's a tough insight to accept, but it's, and, uh, but, and it's a, when, in fact, to implement, let's say, an anti-slavery policy is an interesting question. John Quincy thinks it should come by 1820. I think I've taken up most of my time, and I've not even gotten you to the presidency and to the fact that she failed him on only one occasion when she urged him to pass the, to vote for the Alien and Sedition, to sign the Alien and Sedition Acts, uh, her biggest blunder, and to some extent, the big mark on his presidency. Um, their retirement years is an extraordinary story. They don't have many letters then, because they're together, but there's a lot of other evidence then, and there's two scenes that, that I'll just leave you with and hope to titillate your interest. Abigail's looking out into the field, and John's working with the workmen. They have a, about a 600-acre a farm there and swinging the scythe and he's mumbling something and she wonders what he's mumbling. And if you take a look at his letters for them, he is is cursing out Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton and Tom Paine as people who deserve to be eviscerated. Um, There's also a scene that's just much briefer to describe. Abigail is in the kitchen shelling peas and John is standing at the counter reading Descartes to her. It's, you know, it's, it's really amazing. Um, she dies
0: uh,
1: of a fever, serious fever, um, in 1818. When she's dying, he lies down in bed with her and says, I think I should just die with you. But he doesn't. He lives for another eight years. He's always worried about what he calls dying at the top, meaning dementia or what we would call Alzheimer's. The exact opposite happens with Adams. His body shrivels up. He loses all his hair and all his teeth, and he can't walk very well. But his mind is really, really full, very active till the very end. There's a great portrait by uh, Gilbert Stewart done in 1823-24 that captures that moment where the envelope is dying, but the light within shines forth. As some of you already know, the, the story of the end is the kind of thing that you couldn't make up. And here it is, this is the end of the book and the end of his life. He knew that his powers of thought and speech were permanently diminished, so when a delegation from Quincy visited him on June 30th requesting some statement from the patriarch for the looming Independence Day celebration, he refused to cooperate. I will give you independence forever, he declared. Asked if he might like to elaborate, he declined. Not a word. He had finally learned, at the very end, the gift of silence. Abigail would have approved. Physicians and other visitors came away from his bedside, convinced that the end was near. John always said that uh, if there is a heaven, beatific vision struck him as really boring. He wanted Abigail to be there so he could make love and Franklin to be there so he could argue with him. On the morning of July 4th, John lay in his bed, reading with difficulty, apparently unable to speak. But when apprised that it was the fourth and the 50th anniversary of Independence Day, he lifted his head and with conscious or obvious effort declared, it is a great day. It is a good day. Late in the afternoon, he stirred in response to a severe thunderstorm, subsequently described in eulogies as the artillery of heaven, and was heard to whisper, Thomas Jefferson survives. This was heard by several bedside observers. But by a coincidence that defied the probabilities of history and even the parameters of fiction, Jefferson had died earlier that same afternoon. Both patriarchs, each possessed of indomitable willpower, seemed determined to die on schedule. The 50th anniversary of the Declaration. John drew his last breath shortly after six o'clock. Witnesses reported that a final clap of thunder sounded at his passing, and then a bright sun broke through the clouds. An estimated 4,000 people attended the funeral at First Congregational Church three days later, as his body was laid to rest alongside Abigail's. They have remained together ever since. Thank you.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Joseph Ellis from the Writers on a New England Stage series. Joseph Ellis has written several best-selling and prize-winning books about the Founding Fathers and the creation of the Republic. I joined him on stage in front of a crowd at the Music Hall in Portsmouth and talked with him about his newest book, First Family, (laughs) Abigail and John Adams. We also included some questions submitted by the audience. After reading your books about the Founding Fathers I'm sensing a real affection for John Adams. Maybe even over the others. Maybe over Jefferson certainly. Could...
1: Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> now remember I'm a Virginian. I went to the same college as Jefferson, William and Mary and the hair that I have, that is what remains of it, is about the same color as Jefferson's. So there's reason to think that Jefferson would be somebody I liked and I do think that he is the most resonant of the Founders in that he simultaneously wrote the magic words of American history, the ones that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident, which are probably the most important words in all of American history, and simultaneously owned 200 slaves and believed that race was biological Mm -hmm. and that blacks and whites could not live together. So you've got the two sides of American history wrapped up in the same person. Also, I wrote a book about him, so I spent five years studying him, and I gave a talk in Richmond uh, after that book came out, and this woman, and I don't know whether any of you know Richmond, Richmond's further south culturally than it is geographically. (laughs) And um, like she said, Mr. Ellis, everything you have said about Jefferson is wrong. And I know it's wrong because he appeared to me in my bedroom last night. (laughs) And he told me you were gonna say all these bad things about him. And Mr. Ellis, this was her punchline. Mr. Ellis, you are a mere pigeon on the great statue of Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) And so I said, uh, da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba. And she came up and gave me her card, and so I was able to write her about a month later when a thought did occur to me. (laughs) And I said, Dear Madam, it is not important whether or not you regard me as a pigeon. It is very important that you recognize that Jefferson was not a statue. (laughs) Adams is the one that if you said, who would you like to have a beer with? He's the one. We'll have a Sam Adams beer together.
0: (laughs) Well, John Adams and Jefferson had a long friendship, a fraught Mm. friendship at many junctures, a bitterly uh, divided friendship. But Abigail and Jefferson also had their own friendship and their own correspondence. What do do their letters tell us about the legacy?
1: Jefferson has a very clear gender-driven definition of women. Women are... Over here, they are, you know, his daughters will be trained to play the harp and play cards and that kind of thing. And that now the Salon women of Paris defy him too, mm. but, but uh, the, their promiscuity and their intellectual zestiness, um, is, they're, they're not con- conventional women at all. Abigail is a conventional woman, a wife and a mother, and a very independent mind. Jefferson has never seen that before. He's taken with it. And they remain friends up till the end of the 18th century, and then they split when the the two parties split, mm-hmm. and she obviously sides with uh, her husband. And uh, there's a longer story after that, but I, I'll shut up right now.
0: Well, there is a moment. Uh, she was also very shrewd politically, as yeah. you're uh, alluding to. And before her husband's presidency, I think it's when he's just been elected, she. Advises a kind of backdoor approach mm. to Jefferson.
1: Oh, that's right. You're right. I had yeah. forgotten that. That's well, <laughs> I'm I just the first guy to say this, and I <laughs> forgot I said it. And. Um,
0: well, and, Mr. Ellis, it yeah, came Mr. to me Ellis, in a dream, citizen. actually. Um.
1: <laughs> yes, in the uh, in the uh, election of 1796, Adams wins a narrow victory over Jefferson, 72 to 69 electoral vote, and. The way it's set up then, until the passage of the 12th Amendment, like 1804, the person who comes in first is the president, and the person who comes in second is the vice president, which creates an awkward situation, as you might imagine. And Abigail advises John to attempt to bring Jefferson into his administration. As vice president under Washington, Adams was not member of the cabinet, And Washington believed that the office of vice president was to be located in the Senate. Adams was prepared to offer Jefferson a position in the cabinet and equal say on foreign policy, which was a big deal. Initially, Jefferson says, okay, I mean, he he suggests he's open to that, but Madison doesn't allow him to send the letter that he would accepting and says that, you, you know, you have to be in opposition. But Abigail's notion is nobody, no single person can succeed George Washington. Adams and Jefferson together mm-hmm. could do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a good idea, and Jefferson kills it.
0: She's, she's very clever. And there are so many, as you point out, parallels between their relationship and the formation of the nation. Mm. You know, they, they are married and start having children when the British declare parliamentary rule. They're negotiating the terms of their relationship when the United States is creating its notion of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, go abroad when it's creating diplomatic relationships. And I wonder if it could be argued that they are actually checks and balances for each other in some way. Oh, yeah.
1: That's a good point. And I've argued before that there are checks and balances within the revolutionary generation, you know, that not just in the document of the Constitution, formally or informally, but that there's a Hamilton against a uh, Jefferson, and et cetera, the temperaments and ideological perspectives collide and therefore bounce off. But in The Marriage, yes, he as a young man talks about the raging bulls that he feels inside himself. Mm. And there are some people who think that Jefferson, excuse me, Adams had a thyroid problem. It's impossible to know uh, all these years later, but Abigail is his ballast.
0: Well, right. She's you know, very confident he's p- plagued by demons,
1: yeah and she knows that and she has to deal with that and she creates a kind of environment in which he begins to be capable of a level of productivity he wasn't before where these angers and these irritable energies are thrown into uh... productive pamphlets political actions it is difficult to imagine adams becoming the revolutionary leader he was if he hadn't married abigail Mm -hmm.
0: well despite their tremendous devotion to each other. Uh, Charles Francis Adams in 1841 published a compilation of their letters.
1: And he also talked about... It's the first, yeah, it's the first published version of the
0: The many triumphs, but the, the unhappiness, the deep unhappiness of his family. And, and you write yourself, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the human debris around them in their later years would be characters that would fit in a Eugene O'Neill play. I mean, yeah. what, what happened with their children?
1: It's always, I'm always reluctant to talk about good or bad, child-rearing. I have three boys, all of whom seem to be non-delinquent children, and um, uh, (laughs) yet how they turn out is sometimes impossible to control or to affect. But they had four children that survived to adulthood. They had two others that one died at 16 months and the other was stillborn. The only one that has a successful life is John Quincy. Now, of course, he has a very successful life by measure of of renown. He becomes president of the United States. Though he himself was not a happy man, he had enormous public success, though he only was a one-term president. They hurled him out of office as fast as they did his father, just as John knew they would. He never had a childhood. He was always being groomed to be the great man when he was being considered for the, uh, an uh, ambassadorial post, I think it was at St. Petersburg, though it might have been Berlin, I can't remember. John was vice president, so he was overseeing the debate in the Senate. And it was a little awkward if there were any criticism to come up, you know, because this is his son. And so uh, one of the other federalists, in order to avoid the criticism in the short circuited and said, is there anyone else we can think of who is fluent in Latin, Greek, French, German, Dutch, and Russian? Oh no? Okay, then let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> The other three kids, the the two boys, Charles is the most tragic, died at 30 of alcoholism. And Tommy, who's the least revealed, fails at law, as did Charles, and becomes the only thing he can produce is children. And he moves back with the family when they're in retirement, and he produces eight or nine kids. Nabby, Abigail Second, uh, marries badly. She marries, this is again, you never know. She marries this guy that sounds like perfect, you know? Handsome guy, graduate of Princeton, served on George Washington's staff, secretary to the Adams during his time in London, William Stephen Smith. Total schmuck. <laughs> Loses his money in western land speculation, uh, tries to finance some fantastic invasion of Venezuela <laughs> thrown in jail um, and just awful and, um, and Abby's trained to be loyal to her husband mm. so when he goes to jail for the Venezuela thing she goes to jail with him and eventually she at a reasonably young age in 1811 comes down with breast cancer mm. she and her four kids spend most of their time in Quincy or maybe half the time in Quincy and she comes down with the breast cancer and John writes to Benjamin Rush for advice, and he says, go to the knife. Mm. She has a radical mastectomy without anesthesia. It's unbelievable. And two years later, she's back then dying because they didn't get it. Um, She dies in her father's arms, and, you know, Abigail says it's the greatest blow she's ever suffered. Child-rearing-wise, I think Abigail was the tougher of the two. John was tough, but always let the pressure off. Abigail, when John Quincy comes across the Atlantic and the, the ship is really in danger many times and he almost goes down, she says she's so happy he made it, but that if indeed he goes on to lead a life of immorality and unvirtue, her word, she would prefer that he go down to the deep right now. Mm. Wow, pretty tough. <laughs>
0: Right, New Englanders. Yeah. Mm. Early New Englanders. Mm. Well, uh, funnily enough, a number of questions from the audience are about contemporary politics and the connection to our founding fathers. One asked if Franklin, but we can add, if John Adams were to observe how today's federal government functions, would he conclude that their republic, as they envisioned it, is lost?
1: Hmm. It's It's tough to see that without my own eyes. I think that they would be surprised the republic has lasted as long as it has. John was worried most about the creation of excessive consumption and affluence. The the thing that would most disconcert him, believe it or not, is be like malls. You know? He also thought the Senate was supposed to be the responsible branch of the government (laughs) that would sort of prevent the democratic excesses from becoming excessive, but, of course, it's now become a kind of, you know, blockage against anything, and um, I don't think that he would like that. I do think in the argument about the role of government, John's clearly on the side that government is the representative of the collective public interest. That's the reason he insisted that the Commonwealth should be called a Commonwealth, Mm -hmm. and that the government isn't them, the government is us.
0: But he was not a populist either. No.
1: He, he oh, took no. the
0: long view in a big no, way. No,
1: no. And he thought there's a difference between a republic and a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. Res publica. The word is not the people. The word is the public. The public is the long-term interest of the people, which at any given time, most of the people don't understand. <laughs> Therefore, the last thing you want to do is go with polls. Okay. <laughs> And the the people are often wrong. He was thrilled when he lost the election of 1800. I know I was right. I mean, you know. And of course,
0: politicking or campaigning was gauche.
1: Oh, anybody that ran for office was considered a prostitute. And uh, that you know, anybody that ran for office was exhibiting the fact that you were unqualified to serve Mm. because you had ambitions that would that would destroy your ability to divine the public interest in a detached way. So his is a kind of pre-political party view of politics. Washington's was, too. That era was already ending when they were in office.
0: Are the claims of connection between today's Tea Partiers and the Boston Tea Party and the Founding Fathers legitimate?
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) The Tea Party itself is such a disparate thing. To talk about it as if it were a coherent political party is probably wrong. The Tea Party, the original Tea Party people in Boston were protesting Parliament's taxation of them without their consent, okay? What does without their consent mean? It means we didn't have anybody representing us in the British Parliament or in the British Ministry. So the basis for their hostility was a lack of representation. Once you create a federal government in 1787 and ratified and passed and put in place in 1789. You've created a political body where you are represented. See, the Tea Party doesn't adjust to that reality. And I think that it is an interesting movement because it is not exclusively, but in a dramatic way, convinced that it understands the intention of the founders and that the origins of American politics are to be found there. They are right about that, but instead of finding a clear set of principles, you find a clear set of arguments in which people don't agree, and if they want to discover founders that are close to them, Jefferson is the one for them. It won't be Adams, it won't be Hamilton, it won't be Washington, so that there's divisions within the generation. you got to pick they think Madison is on their side, too, but he really isn't. Madison is on whoever's side. <laughs> He's paying him the most money. That's a little unfair.
0: Do you see it lasting, the Tea Party movement?
1: I think the Tea Party is an expression of frustration. I think it will last as long as the recession.
0: Hmm. What was the transit time of correspondence between Philadelphia and Boston?
1: Two weeks. Two weeks. Um, in the 1770s. It becomes a week in the 1790s. From Philadelphia to Boston for a letter from Paris to Braintree six months. And a lot of them never made it.
0: What is the legacy of the Adams presidency? I mean that what you uh, identified as a great black mark, but Adams what is the no Adams
1: is the anti Bush. He does not get us into an unnecessary war. But you have Abigail. Bush gets his second term as president because he gets us into an unnecessary war. Adams lost his second term because he refused to do it. He was proud as hell of that. He says, I want this on my tombstone. We did not go to war. Now, he's a contrarian. You know, this is the guy that defended the British troops in the Boston Massacre, Mm -hmm. okay? He loves to do these kind of things. Um, It's almost perverse. As I said before, when he lost the election, he said, ah, I know I must be doing the right thing. But I think in terms of his greatest public legacy is that he avoided an unnecessary war, maintained American neutrality, and began the construction of an American Navy. There ought to be a statue to Adams in Annapolis. He's really the father of the American Navy.
0: How important are these letters to his legacy?
1: Oh, they're everything. Both the the Adams family correspondence and then the larger John Adams public figure correspondence. I think it's like more valuable than the shale oil deposits off the coast. It's the reason why he has emerged in the recent past, the last 10 or 15 years, as one of the great founders, that they reveal a man who is flawed and imperfect and edgy, not iconic. Um, you know, he's, they called him his rotundity. LAUGHTER uh, but he is so honest, and so exposed, and so there. And he's there with a woman all that time.
0: Yeah. And John fretted about his legacy.
1: Oh, God, yeah. He was, he was desperate about it. And um, he thought he made fun of himself for doing it. He said, what difference does it make what people think of me 200 years from now, or what they think of me in Mesopotamia right now? But, um, um, but it's irresistible, he said. He's got a certain Freudian insight. Freud once said that it's impossible for a human being to understand his own non-existence.
0: You write also that there are some things that we can never know for sure about their deepest thoughts and feelings, and I wonder what do you most want to know about them that isn't in these letters?
1: Hmm. Hmm. I would like to know whether John and Abigail recognized that slavery was the issue that needed to be addressed. They were both opposed to slavery. One of the issues that is central to the late 18th century is the failure to address the issue of slavery. And John, this is one of these things he says we're gonna postpone, okay? Mm -hmm. But I think that was a mistake on slavery because once the numbers reached a certain level, number of slaves, it became ever more impossible to imagine gradual emancipation. And so the window was closing. They thought it was opening. They thought slavery was incompatible with free labor. They thought slavery was gonna die a natural death. But at a certain point in time, it became pretty clear that wasn't happening, somewhere in the 1790s. And I, you know, I would like to know what the conversation on that was between them, if there ever was one. Because John Quincy claims there was. Mm-hmm. And he claims later in his career, when he's acting out as an opponent and opposing the slaves, the southern states, he says, This is what my parents told me to do. He attends the anniversary of Bunker Hill Monument in 1843, does John Quincy. And it's being done by the president, John Tyler, who's a Southerner, Virginia, William and Mary graduate, slave owner with his slave holding an umbrella over him. And John Quincy's there, and he's making notes in his diary. And the notes say, my mother took me to the top of Penn's Hill to see this battle. He saw the battle. Mm. If they knew that this slave-owning blankety-blank was here, they would say that it wasn't worth it. These men died for nothing. Um, so, the degree to which slavery is the gorilla in the center of the room, the ghost at the banquet throughout this period, and that the Adamses to some extent participate in that etiquette. I would like to know if they ever talked about not doing that.
0: Well, after books like McCulloch's book, the HBO miniseries that it inspired, the two books last year on Abigail and John, and the collection of letters, Dearest Friend, which you, for which you wrote the foreword you know their they're being apart was not so great for them, maybe not so great for the kids, like catnip for historians, Absolutely. obviously.
1: Absolutely, it's the paradox of proximity. But, but is
0: is it a mistake for us to believe that we truly knew them?
1: I tried to say that something to that. I think that there's some things you can never know. You can get as close to knowing the intimate feelings of Abigail and John. Abigail said something interesting once. She said my pen is truer than my tongue. Hmm. I can write things to you that I cannot speak. That makes me think that their letters are accurate replications of their intimate conversations, but in the end, they are more orchestrated. Um, now, there's always going to be a space between what we know and, and, and the ultimate truth, but I think you can get closer to them than to any other prominent couple in American history
0: well, I wonder if you as a historian historians generally deal in ideas this this is very much about emotions did yeah, you in, it is. what was that like for you writing about that
1: I, I was different I've never written a love story before mm. um, and that's really what it is I mean and um, I think that'll it'll, it'll mean that some scholars have trouble with it you know like emotions aren't as important or whatever um, but I think it's uh, what makes the story vibrant and vital, and I think it's the relationship between the emotions and the big issues that is the way history was really experienced, you know? Like being pregnant and and having your child, and writing in between contractions Mm -hmm. while the the war is being decided by General Howe's tactical moves that John is trying to follow. As I said earlier, being you know at the Declaration of Independence while your you know your family's in in the confinement for or quarantine for smallpox, um, it's the collision and collusion among the personal and the intimate on the one hand and the public life that you're leading that is the way life in history is really experienced. They let you feel that.
0: Joseph Ellis, we thank you so much for spending some time with us thank this you.
1: evening.